0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest Dharma series.
1: Uh, Good evening, everyone. Uh, I uh, have a script here that I need to follow for the uh, taping of this this evening. Uh, So I'd just like to say good evening, and today is, I believe, Friday, November 10th. And our speaker tonight is Marcia Rose. And uh, I have the true honor and pleasure of introducing Marcia to all of you. Um, you know, some people arrive coming through, you know, the postman, what's that story? Snow, sweet, hail, whatever. Well, Marcia arrived today literally via a beautiful snowstorm. Uh, so. Uh, we're happy to have her. It was an interesting drive here. Uh, many of us uh, in the community here just finished a week-long retreat with Marcia. Uh, and other community members I know uh, know Marcia well from previous retreats. And also some of you, I think, just finished a month-long or two-week retreat with her out of IMS. Um, so uh, in some respects, uh, Marcia um, goes without needing a lot of introduction, uh, but I would like to give you some for those of you who may not know Marcia. Uh, She is the uh, founding and guiding teacher of the Mountain Hermitage in Taos, and is the uh, founding teacher uh, of the Taos uh, Mountain Sangha. She has been studying and practicing Buddhist teachings and meditation with Asian and Western teachers since 1970, primarily in the Theravada of Vipassana tradition. Marcia was also a teacher and staff at the Insight Meditation Center here in Massachusetts from 1991 to 1995, and she sometimes now is uh, still one of the teachers for the annual uh, three-month retreat at IMS. Uh, She holds other retreats uh, nationally and internationally, Um, and again, I think I'm just going to turn this over to Marcia, um, and (laughs) maybe... There we go. I'll we'll just turn this over to Marcia, and I know you'll all enjoy the talk this
0: evening. Once we set up, feels like it's going big. Yeah, it's going big. Okay. Hello. <laughs> I see some familiar faces and uh, dear friends. Lots of unfamiliar faces. I think in the newsletter it was um, <coughs> listed, the title of the talk, <laughs> I'm laughing, the title of the talk was Untangling the Tangle, which uh, was the title I came up with when Mark asked me for a title, even though I had absolutely no idea what I would be talking about this evening. But that's a kind of a title that could cover any of the Buddha Dharma. It's all about untangling the tangle. (coughs) Specifically, though, this evening, because we're moving into a time, uh, the season, we could say, in our judeo christian culture, When many people incline towards, or at least hope, for um, increased joy in their life, and there's a lot of cultural pressure coming up uh, for increased joy in our lives. I thought that I would uh, this evening speak about joy but from a very different perspective <clears throat> than our um, seasonal cultural approach to joy. What I'd like to speak about this evening is joy for, joy with, or what in Pali is called udita. And it is about untangling the tangle. (laughs) Some years ago, I attended a week-long retreat up in northern Colorado with a Tibetan Buddhist teacher. And for the last official evening Dharma talk, we had a special guest teacher who was one of the teachers of the Rinpoche uh, who was teaching the retreat. Our guest was Adi Rinpoche, who is a man in his late 70s. And this was his first trip to the United States. We had been given some background about Adi Rinpoche, um, background information, uh, before he uh, gave his talk. And we were told that he was a very fine artist and that he had been in a Chinese prison camp for 20 years. And that for 15 of those years, he and two other lamas who were also in prison were practicing in retreat. This 15-year prison retreat (coughs) came about because of the kindness of one of the Chinese doctors at the prison who had created the conditions uh, that made it possible for these three men to be in retreat for 15 years. We were also told that Adi Rinpoche was one of the few remaining, as his student, who was our teacher for the retreat, said that Adi was one of the Adi Rinpoche was one of the few remaining antique lamas from Tibet. So our honored guest came in, and uh, and with his somewhat stiff and somewhat bent body, was given help to climb up into his seat. As some of you know, uh, Tibetan teachers sit in a kind of throne, so he had to climb up to his throne. And he gave <clears throat> a very long and very clear and very traditional, from a Tibetan Buddhist perspective, Dharma talk essentially laying out the path from the beginning of its ethical, moral foundations all the way on up through, step by step, to the Tibetan Dzogchen teachings and practices. And it wasn't a particularly scintillating talk, uh, nor was there much, if any, humor in it. And yet it was interesting, it was an interesting talk. There was, though, a particularly scintillating aspect uh, that evening, and that was actually Adi Rinpoche himself. As he spoke, there was a lightness and a suppleness, suppleness, and an incredible delight in his demeanor. At times, it actually seemed as though he was kind of lightly bouncing in his seat while he was talking. Maybe the closest thing I've ever actually seen to levitation. And just to check myself um, around the possibility of my projection onto Adi Rinpoche, after the talk, I asked uh, two friends of mine who were also Attending that retreat, the container of the retreat was (coughs) not a particularly silent container as it is for uh, the retreats that many of you go to. I asked my friends if they noticed uh, these particular qualities uh, coming out from Adi Rinpoche, and they confirmed that they very definitely had also noticed similar qualities. After the retreat was finished, there was a fundraising auction (coughs) where calligraphy and paintings that had been done by Adi Rinpoche were auctioned off to raise some money for this particular retreat center. And the woman who had um, requested these uh, works from Adi Rinpoche, um, a couple of paintings and calligraphy for the auction, told us that she had stayed with him while he worked, uh, I guess earlier that day, and she said that the whole uh, while while he was painting, that he was laughing with delight during the whole time. Each of us has experienced the benefits, the fruits of joy, those remarkably bright attitudes and very buoyant, happy feelings that flow through us. We experience a physical and an energetic sense of transformation, balance within our body, within our mind and heart. And we may in those moments feel unbound. We may feel healed in moments of joy. So this evening, as I mentioned, I'd like to explore (coughs) Mudita with you, this feeling of delight, this feeling of happiness, this joy, joy for, joy with, happiness for, happiness with. These very buoyant and powerful energies, the experience of joy and gladness, that we feel in relationship to the happiness and the success of others. The delight, the joy we might feel in our own heart in relationship to what others have accomplished. In relationship to the good things that have happened to and for others. The Buddha spoke of Joy when he offered the teachings and the practices of the Brahmaviharas, the teachings and the practices of the divine abiding, or what are sometimes called the immeasurables. These immeasurable capacities of heart, metta, unconditional loving kindness, karuna, compassion, upeka, equanimity and mudita, joy, joy for, joy with, sometimes described as sympathetic or empathetic joy, and what I sometimes call contagious joy. Most of us probably have certain ideals that we aspire to in relationship to each of these particular capacities. And ideals, though, of course, they're worthy, basically come from thought, come from the intellect, from the conceptual mind. Our ideals certainly may be an inspiration, an inspiration for us, but it's important actually not to be attached to an ideal, to not be attached to how we think it's supposed to be. It's essential in our practice to connect to the reality of our experience, to connect and to know the reality of being, meaning simply and clearly being with things as they are in the immediacy of the moment. Each of these qualities, these Capacities of heart is really a very natural response to our experiences, a natural response that comes out of the innate purity of our being when we do connect, when we really truly embrace and feel the present moment just as it is. The response of the heart, the response of meta of compassion, of joy, of equanimity. Each of these quite naturally coming from an intuitive awareness. That very natural knowing that's rooted in the unfettered clarity of mindfulness. our capacity to feel joy in relationship to another's happiness success another's beauty goodness to feel joy in relation to someone's delight or their sense of well-being and even our capacity to experience joy in the amazing and boundless beauty of this planet that we share with all sentient beings. This is Mudita. Sympathetic, empathetic, contagious joy. There's a sense of connection and affinity. A feeling of shared joy and harmony. An essential experience of oneness that though experienced personally within our own heart, our own mind and body, is actually totally impersonal in nature, in that it's not mine or yours to own. (coughs) It's not me, not I (coughs) that I am a joyful Person, excuse me. It's not that identity that I am a joyful person. Mudita is. You could say, mudita happens. Mudita can be as uncomplicated as simply feeling the light, bright, soft energy of delight that's emitted when we're in the company of someone who's feeling happy, someone who's feeling at ease. With Mudita, when we feel this, we quite naturally mirror it back to the other maybe with words, but just often in the quality of energy that we emit. And in the process the delight and the happiness is increased. When we recognize and appreciate the particular positive significance of someone something in someone else's life, or recognize the special magnitude, the importance of someone's success, someone's happiness, there's often a very natural inward and outgoing feeling of gladness, of friendliness. This is the response of the heart, of mudita, empathetic understanding, kind heartedness, This very warm, human sense of connection. This is mudita. The seeds of mudita, in fact, the seeds of all of the divine abidings, were planted in each of us long ago and many, many times over our lifetime. Every time someone has been happy for us. Every time someone was delighted for us when we were happy about something. Even just the genuine open-hearted response of a smile or a laugh, when we smiled, when we laughed. The times when we succeeded in some simple way and were responded to with a smile a hug or what often spontaneously happens with babies and young children when they do something delightful or succeed in some way people clap for them those are the seeds of mudita that have been planted in all of us many times over our lifetime These are the seeds we cultivate. The seeds that we grow through our practice. It's as if we've been given a transmission. The transmission of mudita. And we quite naturally, quite intuitively, pass it on. We practice. We cultivate and grow it. The heart, the mind, is purified in the process it's a kind of seamless circle of transmission we cultivate and grow it within ourselves and we pass it on maybe just for a moment right now recall for yourself A time when you've rejoiced, when you've rejoiced for someone else's success, someone else's happiness, maybe someone in this very room or someone else in your life. Just let that that sense, that memory come back, that feeling, that feeling of mudita. In the late 1970s, <coughs> I had the um, great privilege of spending some time with a woman named Dora Kuntz, who at that time was in her 80s. Dora was the national president of the Theosophical Society. and She's, Austri- she's no longer alive, but she, she's an Austrian woman. She had a very unusual (coughs) upbringing in Indonesia. She was taught meditation at a very young age. And she told us that her parents didn't mind if she missed a meal every now and then, (coughs) if she was outside playing. But if she missed her meditation period, that wasn't okay with her parents. Fortunately, uh, Dora didn't um, rebel against this and she grew up to be a very amazing person and when i met her in the early in the 70s and she was in her 80s she was still very very much a very deep and strong practitioner she was a person of deep wisdom and a teacher of mudita by simply being herself <coughs> And it's actually one of the things that I remember um, most clearly about her her lightness, her joy. Often, when she would be teaching us, and she was about to say something, or maybe in relation to something she had just said, or maybe uh, sometimes it was just an internal experience that she was having, she would. It would strike her very funny, and she would burst out laughing. And sometimes she would slap her leg, and she'd laugh and laugh and laugh. And most of the time, we had no idea what she was laughing about. But we laughed with her. It was this contagious joy. It was just a joy to be around her when she was laughing, and everybody laughed. Dora planted many seeds, many, many seeds, many of them the seeds of Mudita. And it said that Mudita is the most difficult of the four divine <coughs> abidings to cultivate. Many years ago when I first heard this I was surprised. But as I checked in more closely with my own experience, I, in fact, uh, found out that a pure, untainted joy in others' success, happiness, beauty, well-being, can be quite difficult at times. There can often be the taste of comparing mine with critical flavors of judgment, Envy, competition, jealousy, maybe a flavor of resentment, debasement, arrogance, and even the taste of a kind of boredom in relationship to others' happiness and success. If we slip into and get stuck in believing and identifying with these old conditioned habits of the comparing mind, We perpetuate and continue to bind ourselves to the very painful delusion of a separate self. We continue to suffer in the duality of this, what we could call, existential loneliness. This most painful delusion that the Buddha called the Conceit of Self. Bodhita practice can Bring to the surface and bring into question much of what has been trained, been conditioned into us. Beliefs that we hold about ourselves, beliefs that we hold onto about how it's supposed to be, and the reactive habit patterns that manifest out of these tightly held beliefs. The practice of cultivating joy for, joy with others, can begin to wake us up to seeing the process of comparing, the process of trying to measure up to these learned, conditioned beliefs. And it's an endless process, endless, and brings great suffering. Practice has the amazing power to show us that if we identify with, if we passively unconsciously accept the learned feeling of being, for instance, deficient, being inadequate in some way, or the learned feeling of being better better than, or the very best, We live with a constant underlying, or maybe not so underlying, feeling of uncertainty, tension, stress. It's this conceit of self that usurps the power, that usurps the vitality of presence, that usurps really being fully present. It's this conceit of self that blocks the joy of simply being present with what is. We set ourselves apart, separate ourselves with this conceit, and it's an endlessly unsatisfying, painful process, a major source of suffering in this human realm. The Buddha said that until we're liberated, until we're awakened, awakened, tis the self by which we suffer. The Zen master Dogen talked about this in a very pointed way. He said, "To study the self, to study the way." is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. To be enlightened by all things is to remove the barriers between self and other. Because of this deeply rooted habit of conceit, which us and keeps us from awakening to the this very natural response of sympathetic joy. The Buddha instructs us to recognize, acknowledge, and rejoice in ourselves. We can reflect on the ways we've been of service, the ways we've cared. others. Reflect on the choices we've made that have been absolutely appropriate and wise at any given time. We can reflect on and rejoice in the times when our heart, our mind, has been clearly present, connected. We can reflect and rejoice in the times when the heart has emanated loving kindness, compassion or joy in relationship to others. And of course the possibility of rejoicing in the fact that we've had the great good fortune to meet and connect with the teachings and the practices of the Buddha. All too often our (coughs) idea of what it means to be really honest with ourselves about ourselves is primarily perceived as admitting our weaknesses, admitting our faults, admitting all of the unskillful, all of the bad quote unquote things we've done. We could call this another facet of the conceit of self, identifying and dwelling in the negative idea of our the negative image of who we think we are this is how guilt how sorrow how anguish is nurtured so i think it's very important to take the buddhist instruction to heart rejoicing in ourselves isn't really a call for arrogance a call for self-centeredness not at all but just the simple recognition and acknowledgement of our goodness, our successes, our healthy human beingness. In cultivating Mudita, it's essential to begin to be able to rejoice in ourselves, not in a prideful or conceited way, but as a means of generating the respect, the love, the confidence, joy, and a sense of well-being, all of which are essential and natural to the awakening mind, the awakening heart. As we pro- proceed with the cultivation of joy, just as with the cultivation of metta, we bring our particular condition reactive habit patterns more and more to the surface, more and more to consciousness. They come to consciousness. They become known. For instance, the critical patterns of the comparing mind might show up. And it's very helpful to notice them, note them, note what happens to them as you proceed along through our practice. Mind states such as judgment, competitiveness, envy, jealousy, arrogance might arise as we cultivate mudita. These are all to be known by simply accepting the feeling just as it is in the moment. We don't indulge nor do we try to, to suppress or criticize our experience. But let it be as it is, in the light of mindful awareness, in the light of intuitive awareness that's rooted in mindfulness. It's also important that we proceed not with an attachment to to an ideal of mudita, not with an attachment to how we think it should be, but really proceed with honesty, with humility, with willingness, and with metta, with unconditional friendship for ourselves. Even as we accept the arising of reactive states, reactive patterns, that may show up in this process. The purification of the heart occurs not by forcing, but through this attitude of acceptance and mindful attention. And at some point, there's a real shift in the relationship to the experience of inadequacy or the painful experience of Being better than. Eventually, our self identification, what we regard as me, as mine, as I, I am, is seen through and breaks up. The beliefs that we've so tightly held onto about ourselves are experienced and known as ephemeral. Just insubstantial habit patterns, not solid truths. The anguish of the comparing mind is no longer being attached to it at that point, no longer being believed in, no longer being identified with. There's a release from the conditioning that I know some of you have, at least to some degree, experienced. There's an opening. Life opens up. Everything opens up. There's a sense of freedom in those moments. We're present in our life. And this is a great joy. As we're free in our own being, the freedom to take joy and to celebrate, to rejoice, in the happiness and success of others is much more readily available. The natural responding, the natural responding purity of sympathetic, empathetic, contagious joy blossoms and flourishes then as the real thing. Just as metta and aversion can't coexist, Jealousy and envy can't coexist with mudita. Quite a number of years ago, <clears throat> about uh, five weeks into a few months of ongoing intensive practice that I was um, doing at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. I began to experience quite an excruciating loneliness. My first reaction um, to this experience was a reaction, <laughs> was uh, a very strong um, desire for some attention, recognition, some kind of acknowledgment. I wanted something from outside myself to assuage my loneliness. I wanted a note on the noteboard. ME. I looked on the noteboard and it seemed like everybody was getting notes except ME <laughs> with a capital M. <laughs> one day in the midst of this difficult time, I was on my way outside to do some walking meditation one afternoon. And I passed by the room of a very dear friend up on the second story of the building that I was staying in. And she was also sitting in the retreat. Her room was down at the end of the hall. And as I passed her room, I noticed a very beautiful bunch of fresh flowers in a vase sitting in front of her closed door, of course, flowers left there by someone signifying very caring attention. And remember, this was a very dear friend of mine. Well, as I passed her room, rageful jealousy erupted. (laughs) Envy, even a taste of hatred, uh, was felt. I felt terrible, actually. So I kept on going. I walked down the stairs, went outside to the trees and the grass. And I decided to really face my pain which in those moments led me to do some metta practice and some mudita practice while I was doing walking meditation. So I decided, okay, I'm going to do mudita for my friend. And I silently repeated the phrases as I was doing walking meditation. Metta mudita, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may your joy and delight be full and increase and never end directing those phrases up to the second story, to the window where my friend's room was. But in truth, what I felt was um, I was doing stomping meditation. I was doing (laughs) walking meditation. And uh, the energy of the phrases were very heavy and very sharp, uh, right along with my stomping steps. Inside, there was a feeling of burning rather than the light and the love that um, uh, and joy that uh, should have been filling my body, I thought, filling my mind, filling my heart, and flowing out towards my friend. And then suddenly a very um, clear, intuitive knowing arose. In the immediacy of the moment, I was the one who was suffering. So the direction of the phrases turned around towards myself and I started practicing meta for myself. May I be safe and protected from inner and outer danger and harm. May I be peaceful and happy. May I take care of myself wisely, wise, wisely joyfully. May I be liberated. I continued for about 40 minutes doing this. And slowly, slowly, feelings of ease and of openness arose. So I decided to go back up into my room to sit. And just as I came up the outside stairway into the hallway and opened the door, my friend opened her door, which was right, right at that same corner. And she saw the flowers for the first time. Is an echo. She saw the flowers uh, for the first time. And an exquisite smile lit up her face. And she didn't notice me. So I just stood there in the, in the uh, doorway, or the outside door, watching. And as I watched, my eyes filled with tears, not of sadness, kind of smiling tears filled my eyes. And great waves of love and deep joy for her and her delight in the flowers came through me that I recognized some very kind-hearted person had left for her. So a transformation happened. As with all of the divine abidings, we work with the seeds that were planted long ago. And as we sow new seeds, cultivating them through our practice, a piece of the process along the way is that we get the opportunity to see what's not in the detail. We had the opportunity to work with those conditions. States. And this doesn't stop us from continuing on, even though sometimes it's not so easy. Some of the energies, the difficult weeds that show up in our gardens that Mudita are quite deeply rooted. And so we have the opportunity to see what are called the far enemies, the opposites of Mudita jealousy, the comparing mind, judgment, boredom. Practice offers us the opportunity to see these states very clearly. And it's in this seeing that the opportunity for transformation occurs. As we just simply continue to plant the seeds of mindfulness, loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and letting go, letting go of grasping onto our old, conditioned habits of suffering when they show up. In relationship to Mudita, we might begin to see and understand the mind of boredom. It said that Mudita eliminates (coughs) boredom. Boredom is rooted in aversion. Boredom is not liking, not being happy with things as they are and often manifests as not paying attention to things, separating ourselves from our experience out of boredom with the mind actually of aversion, wanting something else. As we open to our experiences just as they are, the little things in life, the little things in our practice, and really take an interest. We begin to experience a kind of happiness in this open-hearted receptivity. This in itself is a kind of happiness. We begin to experience delight in the many, many small things that make up our day, that make up an hour, that make up just a few moments, and we're no longer bored. We're connected to this moment just as it is. Our practice is alive again. Our life is alive again. And we just simply carry on, cultivating, fertilizing, watering our garden. The seeds take deeper root. They grow, they blossom, and fruit, slowly, slowly, just as any garden grows. Understanding wisdom comes through our own particular karmic predicaments, as I sometimes call our conditioned mind, in very direct experiential ways. This is a very natural part of the process of practice and awakening for everyone. As the personal particulars of our own karmic predicaments begin to be seen, unwind, and fall away, the mind, the heart begins to open, and the universal truths of suffering and happiness are touched with more and more depth, more spaciousness, as the process of purification unfolds. And it's really important to remember this, in that it helps us to not rigidly lock into our opinions, to not grasp onto our learned, conditioned views with so much tenacity. As our conditioning unwinds and is purified, our View widens and deepens. And the amazing, boundless scope and depth of the Buddha's understanding and teachings just keep unfolding, becoming clearer, brighter, and more and more easily accessible. Mudisa energizes us and makes the heart, the mind, light, pliable open, generous and relaxed. And as these qualities grow and mature along the way of our practice, we find that they are the qualities of being that are very helpful and actually absolutely necessary for our practice as a whole. Mudita depends on our capacity to connect directly and open-heartedly, directly and open-heartedly, and to feel and to take delight in things. We must allow or begin to allow ourselves to feel joy, letting go of the contraction of guilt about feeling happy. Recognizing and letting go of the feeling of fear, the feeling of grasping and the thoughts that if I feel happy, if I feel at ease, if I feel well, I know somehow it's going to be taken away from me. Identification, attachment with the conditioned habits of fear and grasping itself is what defeats happiness. Gladdening our minds, gladdening our hearts helps to free us. And then, in turn, the moments of freedom freedom, gladden our heart, gladden our mind, a seamless circle of inner, inner transmission and transformation, appreciation and gratitude for the blessings in our own life, and appreciate appreciative joy for and with others' blessings. This is very much a part of our practice. When I decided to give a talk on Mudita, I looked for a pure example of it in my own life. So the following two examples are what came up for me. As conditions would have it, my one-year-old, when my grandson was one years old, he and I happened to be together the morning that he first walked all the way across the room totally by himself. He, of course, had been working up to this for weeks. But when it actually happened, he was amazingly, remarkably delighted in the midst of the experience. Like Adi Ricochet, he laughed all the way across the room that first time (laughs) he was able to do such a thing. And I, in turn, experienced amazing feelings of delight and happiness in his accomplishment, and in his great joy with his accomplishment, as it all kind of just unfolded before my eyes. So that was a really pure mudita experience for me. And another recollection arose. Um, This was a time when I lived on a farm. And because we experienced uh, such mudita, We love to go uh, down to the barn to uh, watch the calves and the kids, the baby goats. That's what what baby goats are called, in case some of you don't know. (laughs) The calves and the kids, just as soon as they were born, we used to like to watch them, the birth, if we could get there. And then soon after, soon after they were born, as we could get there. Because very soon after their birth, They would try and try and try again, absolutely undaunted in their struggle, to get up onto their four legs. And then when they would finally succeed in finding their legs, as we called it, they would begin to joyfully just jump and leap and kick all (laughs) over the barn. And it was so joyful to be there. A baby's first walking. The calf and the kid finding their legs. Our own successes and joys in our practice. We could call this joy as grace. Just the very natural unfolding of things, the natural unfolding of the way of things. My grandson certainly was not walking for me. And in fact, he wasn't even walking for him. It's just the way of things. Walking happens. Joy as grace. Joy as just this. Joy just as it is. Exploring and recognizing The joy that has no self at the center of it. The momentary joy of the pure heart. Recognizing and acknowledging these moments in our own experience. In our own life. And one more story. In the early 80s, um, when I was living in Nepal, my youngest son, who at that time was 18, had came over there to visit me for a month, and he and I were going to go trekking together up to the Annapurna base camp. We went to a town called Pokhara, which is the entryway into the Annapurna range. Pokhara is a beach town. It's the gateway to the corner Range. So we were having lunch in Pokhara at a little outdoor cafe sitting out on the porch, which was just in front of, or right in front of us, was a small uh, road, a dirt road, a sand road, actually. And because this restaurant catered to um, a lot of tourists who like to go trekking in the Himalaya, They played music uh, over loudspeakers. And uh, that particular lunch, um, Madonna was singing to Uh, And she was singing, It's a Material World. (laughs) And as we were sitting there, to her singing, It's a Material World, then Paul was walking by uh, on this dirt street in front of us. And along came a man on a cart, and he had no legs. He was a leper. He was pushing the cart along on his knuckles, which uh, were knuckles, because he didn't have very many fingers left either. He was coming in one direction, and in the other direction, a calf was coming along the same road. And they stopped. They met right in front of my son and I on our table, our lunch table. And the calf started licking the man. And the man took off his torn t-shirt and his cap. And the calf licked his whole head. And he twisted his body and turned his body so the calf could lick his back and his whole chest and his arms. And he, he really gave himself to the calf quite fully. And then the calf finished licking him all over his whole upper body, his head. And the man threw his arms around the calf and held him. And the calf very patiently stood there until the man finished hugging him. And then they both continued uh, on the directions, in the directions they were coming, going on. Now let me just say that. Some of you may know, uh, cows in India are holy, and the man was very salty. Cows need salt. So, a holy being gave a dirty, salty man a bath and got its nutrition from the salt. It was uh, a good relationship, (laughs) we (laughs) could say. After they Went on their own way. My son, we didn't speak a word during this. It was quite an amazing thing to partake of. And then we looked at each other and tears were streaming down both our faces. Tears of joy and tears of compassion. The selflessness that inherent in our natural human capacities of metta, of karuna, compassion, and mudita as they grow and mature through our practice. They all dance together, we could say. They add to and support and balance each other, helping to keep the clarity and the spaciousness of seeing and experiencing things as they really, truly are. Experiencing the heart of pure joy for and with another's happiness, another's success. And most profoundly, the experience in any moment of the joy of transformation. This is our possibility. Joy is the ground of our healing and one of the fruits of our practice. And I'd like to close with some words from the Buddha. This is from the Dhammapada, titled Joy, Happiness. Live happily, free from hostility, even among those who hate. Live joyfully, free from misery and affliction, even among those who are afflicted. Live happily, free from the trouble of busyness, even among those who are busy. Live joyfully, like those who have nothing, feeding on rapture, like the Shining One. Winning gives birth to hostility. Losing, one lies down in pain. The calm, lie down in peace, having set winning and losing aside. There's no fire like passion, no loss like hatred, no pain like separation, no happiness like the happiness of peace. Hunger, the primary sickness. Fabrication, the primary pain, knowing this truth just as it is, freedom, the primary joy, health, great good fortune, contentment, great wealth, trust, great kinship, freedom, the greatest happiness. Look within, taste the nourishment of seclusion, of stillness and calm, freed from fear and attachment refreshed, refreshed with the sweet joy of the way. How joyful to see the awakened, always happiness in the company of the wise. Endless grief for those who commune with the fool, as traveling in company with an enemy. Joyful is communion with the awakened, as with a gathering of kin. Follow the awakened, the shining The discerning, the learned, dutiful, loving, integral, and wise. They know how to work and forbear. Follow them as the moon follows the path of the stars. One translation. That's the one I chose. What does that mean? Making things up, basically. I thought it was making. Things. No. <laughs> yeah. There's different ways to say it. I just. I picked that particular word. There's a lot of translations of the Dhammapada. I actually. Uh, Put a few of them together to create this. I picked the one parts of different ones that I particularly liked. I mean, the whole thing is here, but it's uh, no one person's translation. It's a mix of various people's translations. Yes, my
2: uh, my my heart certainly opened, uh, uh, you know, with the stories that you told. Uh, earlier uh, in your talk, uh, you were uh, on retreats and uh, noticing, uh, you know, a sense of self uh, wanting to be recognized and uh, uh, some uh, jealousy and, and so on arising. And you went out and uh, were practicing, uh, you know, your stomping uh, meditation and. Um, uh, one thing that has been helpful for me is, um, um, and I'm kind of working through this, is, uh, you, know, is um, you know, where does mudita arise? And um, sometimes uh, I see the uh, the practice, uh, uh, Buddhist practices, and the practice of mudita. Uh, you know, it's uh, it, it, you know, there's so much there's so much talk about selflessness. And um, you know, but it seems like it's such uh, such an effort to, uh, for instance, uh, there's a redirecting of the mind, you know, to to, uh, to joy or or, or to, to some sort of way to soften. It's been uh, my personal experience that uh, it's helpful for me to uh, think of a, a, a deity or a saint that has these qualities. Uh, this tends to uh, open my heart and sort of uh, redirect my mind and heart towards uh, Mudita-like uh, uh, feelings. And uh, so, you know, I had a question about the practice of uh, devotion. Uh, maybe your experience of it or uh, somewhere in Buddhism. I really don't... You know, you sort of talked about at the end there's this quality of uh, appreciation for the Buddhist teachings. And, you know, I'm just not there with... with uh, with that, you know, haven't had a maybe as much sense of, uh, uh, you know, noticing freedom or, or openness. Uh, so just kind of uh, wondering how one might practice with uh, devotional practice, and, and sort of there's just a, an intellectual kind of a, you know, I'm getting caught up because I see that, you know, if if the joy is just there, it's it's not. There's no self there. But for me, in my mind, it always seems like, you know, when I hear the talks, it's you know, it's myself sort of doing the practice, and, and as opposed to if there's a deity uh, with those qualities sort of surrendering. And so the deity is, is outside of myself. Mm-hmm. And then, but ultimately, I guess I see, you know, that it's all, that all is selfless. So, uh, anyways, that's just where my mind has mm-hmm. been uh, tonight. And just, you know, that these qualities of uh, joy uh, are... Uh, You know, are are just here. Uh, They're hard to come by sometimes. Right, they're
0: hard to come by, you know. Yeah, and so inspiration is definitely part of the practice. Being inspired by um, other human beings. I I told some stories about other human beings that I've been very inspired by. I didn't, uh, I was, one of the things I say in the talk, but I didn't do it because I don't see a Buddhist statue here. But I. It's in the corner. Oh, it's way in the corner. I can't do it. There's often on the statue, talk about, he he wasn't a deity, he was a human being, but uh, there's a little smile on most of the statues, of the Buddhist statues. It's just a statue, you know, but it's a symbol of something. So sometimes I. In the talk, if there happens to be a statue right next to me, I'll look at it, you know. And there's this little smile, and it can be an inspiration in a similar way to any particular deities, uh, uh, whatever spiritual um, uh, images uh, uh, that you might have, that anybody might have, that are inspiring, uh, that that. Um, in some way, for us, reflect the joyful heart. Uh, it can be very helpful, of course. Use it. Anything, you know. Use what works for you. If that works, uh, I mean, in Tibetan Buddhism, for instance, uh, deity practice uh, is uh, quite. Maybe that's what we are referring to. I don't know, but um, the images of the deities are images of various. Aspects of mind, that's what those deities are. And and there's a big, huge pantheon of deities in Tibetan practice, and each one uh, is a reflection or a a form, informs some aspect of mind. And uh, they're used uh, in that way, to reflect and to inspire and to face and all those different things that we need to do in order to work own heart minds out of its contracted places, tight, conditioned places. So using uh, whatever works for you in terms of inspiring and helping you reflect and move through the places where you are contracted, where we're tight, where joy isn't uh, showing up, it's very helpful. Yeah. Thank you.
1: have one more comment or question if somebody has to So,
0: everybody can hear you. A friend of mine is taking music lessons on an instrument, an Indian instrument called the sarangi. And there are three strings. Can you all hear? No. Okay, i have to repeat them. She has a friend who's taking <laughs> musical <laughs> lessons on an Indian instrument called the sarangi. And there's three strings that you play with the bow. Three strings you play with the bow? <laughs> I feel like a
1: translator. What? <laughs>
0: Twelve underneath. Twelve strings underneath and, and three underneath. Sympathetic stream. And they don't need to be plucked directly. They don't need to be plucked. Oh, that's very interesting. They don't need to be plucked directly, but they vibrate. So you pluck the top three and the other ones vibrate. <laughs> Mudita. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> there was, did she have a question? I did. It's gone. That's it. That happens to me. Is there any more? Yes,
1: one more. Well, I'm kind of curious why you
0: chose to that particular um, reading. You chose that panel that it highlighted the importance of the panel. Would you like to say a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. Well, for one thing, I chose this particular reading uh, uh, because titled joy, <laughs> or happiness joy, um, <clears throat> and there weren't some words from the Buddha about this, this particular um, subject. At the end, uh, uh, he does speak about uh, the companions we choose or who we spend our time with. Um, but all through it, it's reflecting all different aspects of our life. Different qualities that uh, are come up in relationship to certain, certain states and certain aspects of life. Um, the companions we keep are—I mean, here we all are—with uh, our our dhamma, dharma companions. The companions we keep are important. It, whom we choose to spend time with uh, is really important, and uh, if we're interested in awakening, it's uh, very, very helpful to spend time with others that are also interested in awakening. And to engage in uh, the exploration and investigation and practices with uh, those that are also interested, and um, to be to put oneself in a place where we can receive the teachings of these these teachings and the, the way of practicing with them. I want to say, I'm going to say, in our culture, uh, it's not a supported process. We're actually uh, quite a minority in this culture, and culturally, culturally overall, um, what we're, what everybody in this room, obviously, is to some degree at least interested in, is um, not uh, supported as a whole culture. You're quite the opposite, actually, in some in many ways, in specific. So we need each other. We need sangha. We need community. We need spiritual friends.
2: Thank you so much Marcia, for coming. Yeah, in. Okay.
1: Thanks, Marianne, for taking care of Marcia. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: Thank you for listening.